Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome along to episode 10 of From Page to Practice. I'm so pleased to be bringing you a special length episode today with contributions from 11 different people, not including myself. On the lead up to this episode, I was lucky enough to be able to give away a copy of the original book, Making Every Lesson Count, sent to me by Crown House, and the MFL version, also sent to me by Crown House, as a thank you for providing a review that's been included on the cover of the book. Hopefully, I'll be able to do this again in future if I have spare copies of any of the books that I feature. In this episode, we're going to hear from the authors of the Geography, MFL, Maths and Primary versions of Making Every Lesson Count, and readers of some of those, as well as the history, English and the original. You're not going to hear too much from me today, as there are so many great voices to hear from, so without further ado, we'll hear from Matt Galvin, who talks about a whole school application of the book, and others in the series. Thanks again to Matt for coming on for his second episode. Hello, my name's Matt Galvin, I'm Deputy Head at Winsford Academy in Cheshire. I was asked to talk about the Making Every Lesson Count series. Um, When I first joined the school, the uh, head asked me to look at one overarching theme or idea that we could use um, to talk about teaching at the school. I looked at a number of different options, things like uh, Teach Like a Champion and so on, and then settled on um, Making Every Lesson Count because I thought it gave us um, something that fitted the context. Um, I really like the idea of um, making every lesson count from uh, year seven all the way through to year 11. I think it's easy in, in high stakes assessments to focus so much on Key Stage 4 and particularly year 11. Um, and to take that uh, intensity out and, and put it across from year seven all the way upwards. Uh, it was really valuable. I spent some time reading the book in detail and then putting it into the sections uh, and then using those sections to um, identify areas for development within the school. Um, and then through CPD, delivered expert sessions um, on things like assessment or, or questioning and so on. It's been really positive because it's given us a common language to talk about uh, teaching uh, and also a com- common vision that it is every lesson that counts, um, not just those those last few in year 11. Uh, and that's been really positive. Um, and it's also spun off uh, the staff of uh, the teachers have really grabbed hold of it. So we have a book group um, every term where teachers will pick a, a book that they want to choose and then we look at it. So we've done things like um, Alex Quigley's um, Colors in the Vocab Gap. Um, and one of the ones was uh, Making Every Lesson Count. So there's a book now for most of the uh, different subject areas. So that was great. We had uh, the staff going off and looking at making every lesson count in science or English, maths, history and so on. Uh, and then sharing their ideas, both in terms of their subject specific domains, um, but also the more general lessons that they could use across the school. 
Uh, as always, things evolve. Um, so we're looking at, uh, at dual coding at the moment and a lot of the work that Ollie Cav's been um, using. Um, but we still use the Making Every Lesson Count as our basic framework for teaching and learning across the school. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next, we're going to hear from Mark Enser, who is returning, having spoken about his other book, uh, Teach Like Nobody's Watching, on a previous episode. He's the author of the geography version of Making Every Lesson Count, and we also have contributions from readers Kate Stockings and Faye Wilson-Cressy. Hello, my name's Mark Enser. I'm the author of Making Every Geography Lesson Count, I'm also Head of Geography and Research Lead at Heathfield Community College, and a test columnist. I've first read the original uh, Making Every Lesson Count back in 2015, not long after it came out. It was sitting in our school CPD library and I was running a bit early for a meeting and figured I'd need something to read to pass the time. And there was something about it that just appealed. I think it was probably just the cover, the fact it was a nice hardback book, looked quite elegant, didn't have the kind of weird garish cover designs that you tend to get with education books. I grabbed it, headed off and got to the meeting too early had about kind of 20 minutes opened it and it just immediately hit me that this is what had been missing from my teaching um i didn't realize that there were people out there talking about these things in education about how we could apply educational research to our lessons how teachers could have the power and authority to do that that we could make these kinds of decisions for ourselves and it just opened my eyes to a whole new way of looking at the profession so I'd been embedding the ideas, the principles for making every lesson count in my teaching for a year or two I started blogging at Teach Real uh, WordPress a blog site, um, started writing for Tess, wrote a few pieces for The Guardian, all about this idea of taking research and really the ideas for making every lesson count and applying it in my geography classroom. So when um, Sean and Andy asked me to write the geography version of the book, I was over the moon, was hugely honoured because it completely changed my practice and the idea that I might have the chance to do that for someone else was um, great. It was going to be very, very exciting. So, um what I really wanted to try and do with the book, I suppose, was I think I think a concern I had was that it would just become an appendix to the original books. The original book's great. It really does apply to any subject. And so to try and take those ideas and apply them to geography classroom, I wanted to make it distinctly geographical. I wanted to spend some time really thinking about what made geography what it was. And look beyond um, the kind of educational research that we tend to use a lot in education at the moment. So away from just kind of retrieval practice and um, sweller and cognitive load theory and things like that. And to use that because it, it was very, very useful, but also to look at what people in the world of geography were writing about and to look at some of the things to do with uh, assessment and curriculum, uh, to look at progression within geography and ideas like that. So that's what I hope I managed to do, was was to write about making every geography lesson count in particular, to, to put it within that subject. Uh, in order to do that, I, I had to move away slightly from really looking at the individual lesson, because geography really doesn't work like that. What makes 
a geography lesson count is that it connects to the lesson you taught before and it prepares for what comes after. A lesson on its own is never going to be an excellent lesson. It, it's going to be too isolated. It's not going to sit within a wider geographical understanding. So I hope anyone reading the book would notice as you're, as you're looking through those six principles is there's this constant reference to um, the curriculum and the wider curriculum. And I, I hope that uh, makes the book useful, especially at the moment with this newfound focus on the curriculum rather than just on um, generic kind of pedagogy. So that's what, that's what I hope to um, achieve. I think the other thing that I was looking to do, it, which was really the theme of my, my second book, Teach Like Nobody's Watching, was to show that these things don't have to be massively complicated, that we don't have to overcomplicate things to make every lesson count and to make every geography lesson count, that we can do feedback in geography in a way that moves pupils on, but that doesn't involve dragging home huge, great bag loads of books and then just sit in the hall to glare at us over the weekend, um, that we can use questioning, just, just simply that we don't have to have jars of lollipop sticks and complex systems of asking questions. We just need to hone our practice um, so that it becomes natural, the kind of thing that expert teachers do all the time. So I hope that comes through as well. The other thing that I, I really wanted to do um, in this book was to include case studies from other geography teachers. I didn't want it to be just my voice, um, my view on what makes every geography lesson count because we've got such a huge um, community of geography teachers out there. We're really lucky with our professional associations, with the Geographical Association, with the Royal Geographical Society bringing geography teachers together and Twitter's helped with that as well. So I wanted to have a look at other people who were also applying similar ideas in the classroom and ask them to contribute. So the end of each chapter has got a contribution from another geography teacher talking about their own practice and how it looks in their classroom. And they're some of my favourite sections in the book. Um, I still go back to them now and I'm looking for ideas um, to see what other people are doing. And it's been lovely that um, well, some of those people were writing already in various ways and some of those people have now started writing more as a result of this. So uh, that's been great to see as well because they're um, some brilliant geographers there. Um, so I hope anyone who um, read it enjoys it. I hope even more that more people go and uh, buy it and read it. Um, and please let me know what you think. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Hello, my name's Kate Stockings and I'm Head of Geography at a mixed comprehensive school in Inner London. I recently contributed to this podcast speaking about how I've implied elements of the Science of Learning book into my practice and the practice of our department. Today, I'm going to speak about one part of the Making Every Lesson Count series, the fantastic book by Mark Enser on Making Every Geography Lesson Count. Similarly to the rest of the series, this has become a must-read within our subject community and is regularly referenced at conferences and events. If you ever hear Mark Enser speak, and I highly recommend doing so, he will repeat again and again that teaching is in fact simple. He argues that if we just have the confidence to strip it back, then we are able to be far more effective teachers. This mantra, of course, chimes with the six principles of making every lesson count. One of the elements of my teaching that I've stripped right back this year is questioning. 
In the book, it states that expert teaching requires questioning so that students are made to think hard with breadth, depth and accuracy. Now, whilst I always think I've created a classroom culture where students are encouraged to ask and answer geographical questions, I don't think I've managed to do so in a way that's always felt safer for weaker or less confident students. So this year, I used the department budget to buy a set of mini whiteboards and it revolutionised my teaching. Yes, it's a very simple idea and yes, it's been around for years and of course I've dabbled in it before. But this year I've really gone for it and absolutely loved it. The key has been to do it regularly, to get students accustomed to the idea that I'm going to ask them to answer questions, recalling information from last week, last term or last year. But they'll do so in a safe environment, a low stakes environment where only I'll see the answer, it won't be recorded and indeed it will be cleaned a moment later. Now, of course, a quick fire mini whiteboard quiz is only valuable if the questions you ask are of value. And indeed, it's taken me time to get this right. It's far too easy to ask students a quick quiz of random questions that don't particularly string together or don't make students think hard with breadth, depth or accuracy. So I've had to plan my questions. I've had to critically consider what the key knowledge that I want students to be able to recall from each topic is and what the key vocabulary that I want students to be able to use is. But doing so in itself has been a fantastically useful task. I'm starting to reap the rewards of frequent questioning of all students in the classroom, regular mini whiteboard, low stakes quizzes. This is just the first way then that having read this book, I've reconsidered how to do one element of my questioning in class and applied what I've read from page to practice. Staying on the theme of asking questions, Mark reminds us that fundamentally, as geographers, but also in every other subject domain, we want our students to look at the world around them and ask questions. Key to this is to model the process of asking questions before giving students the opportunity to ask their own questions. This academic year, our school has adopted fertile questions for our schemes of work at Key Stage 3 and it's been a huge success. In essence, instead of studying a topic called globalisation, Year 9 now study the fertile question of who does globalisation benefit? Instead of studying space in Year 7 science, students answer the fertile question of could humans colonise the solar system? In geography, we've adopted one of the activities given in Mark's book linked to this idea. When starting a new topic, we ask students to come up with the smaller inquiry questions that they'll need to answer in order to fully answer their fertile question. I've tweeted lots of examples of what this looks like in the classroom at at Kate underscore stockings, but I'll do my best to explain it here. Last week, our Year 7s started their new topic with the following fertile question. Will the people of the Maldives be the first climate refugee? Their first activity of the first lesson was to deconstruct this fertile question into smaller ones, coming up with smaller questions that I need to teach them to answer the larger one. When we first did this in September, unsurprisingly, they weren't able to come up with many without support. In hindsight, that's because I didn't provide a scaffold and just expected them to be able to think like a geographer and come up with their own questions and oversight. However, by the time we did this again last week, they were beginning their third topic. Their list of questions was impressive. The component questions they came up with included where are the Maldives, where would these people go, how quickly are sea levels rising, what is a refugee and what's happening to our climate. Mark says that by forming these questions in advance, the students are fashioning mental hooks for the information and it will enable them to create links between what they already know about an issue and what they will learn. 
In this way, they are developing their schemata, those visual representations that shape understanding. Indeed, this is the case with the previous example. Our Year 7s already know about sea level rise from their previous topic. They already know that our climate is changing, and without support, they were able to see the links between their previous knowledge and what they will learn about in this topic. I've been really pleased with our move to fertile questions and how it's gone, and the benefits that we're starting to see at a whole school level of such an approach. This is just one tiny element of a huge range of approaches discussed in the book, but it's had a huge impact on our practice. If anyone has done similar at their school, I'd love to hear more on Twitter and see some examples from your school or your department. So please do get in touch at at Kate underscore stockings. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag Page Practice Podcast. My name is Faye Wilson Cressy and I'm a secondary geography teacher based in Surrey. As part of my role, I'm also a subject tutor for trainee geography teachers, running sessions where trainees apply teaching principles to their geography practice. Making every geography lesson count is a useful tool not only for myself, the trainees, but also to us as a department. I've now added page markers, highlighted it, annotated it to make sure I can use it as a reference guide in the future. The book's broken down to six clear sections, which you may be familiar with if you've read how to make every lesson count. They're challenge, explanation, modelling, practice, feedback and questioning. The section that I wanted to run through that I've found most useful is challenge. We're often reminded and make it a feature of our practice to include challenge in our lessons. In the challenge section of the text, it guides you through to reflect on what will challenge students about future topics and how you can plan for these in the medium and long term through your curriculum to enable students to have the skills and knowledge to rise to that challenge. So to quote, we want to not only increase their knowledge of a range of topics, but also ensure that they know these topics in enough depth to reach sophisticated conclusions and to do this on a range of scales, local, regional, national and international. We want to make sure that they are moving beyond their own experiences and are able to apply theoretical models to a range of places. As such, we will need to ensure that they are equipped with a well-developed toolbox of geographical skills to deploy to this end. I've recently worked on this idea with my trainees and they've found with some of their students that Students are becoming disengaged when they're just repeating similar topics or case studies at Key Stage 3, 4 and 5. And this isn't going to help with student engagement or options take up for exam classes. In fact, it goes against the idea of keeping knowledge broad and keeping that understanding of differences between places um, and their contexts. Our trainees quickly came down to the idea that a lot of what students needed to access challenging content later were skills, analytical data interpretation and manipulation, decision making. These skills we can demonstrate in a variety of different topics and integrate them into every lesson or every sequence of lessons. Make sure they're really well rehearsed on these so that they can access that challenging content later. In the book, there's also the concept of threshold concepts the idea that certain concepts must be known and understood so that there's no barriers to any future learning these concepts act as building blocks to the future understanding and ultimately learning one example of a threshold concept in geography is longshore drift and this is used in the book if a student was to miss that single lesson at key stage three then at gcse 
They're going to struggle because it's a foundation of what they need to understand coastal management techniques, for example, or in key stage five, to investigate the complexities of sediment cells and dynamic equilibrium. So longshore drift is one of these key threshold concepts. The book suggests it's worth going through your own curriculum and identifying threshold subjects so that you can make sure that they are well rehearsed, well tested and checked throughout your curriculum. So as a department, that's something we're certainly starting to look at. The book says that you can then plan for future success by monitoring these the progress of the students in these different areas. It suggests you use them to help structure the programme of study and then use them to part of your sequencing of learning. So this is something we'll already be familiar with when you're putting together a curriculum. But then it says to make sure you're testing these key concepts. So suggest framing your assessment around them and to make sure that you are identifying gaps and closing them, that full loop of feedback. Otherwise, you may test them on these threshold concepts, but you've got no guarantee that that has actually gone in and it's something they can apply later. Finally, make sure you revisit it often. Try and link back to that threshold concept as often as you can. And obviously, this always fits in with the idea of a bigger picture and what that concept's fitting into. I feel that the idea of a threshold concept also links into misconceptions, and this is discussed in the explanation chapter of the book, making sure that we really reassess and cement the ideas that we know are proven to be misconceptions. And this is something we get better at the longer we're teaching, the more we teach these topics. Because this is something that can also act as a barrier to those individuals learning later on. As a department, we're going to use these ideas in order to review our key stage three. And we felt this especially fits in with the new Ofsted framework, where as individual teachers, we really need to make sure we understand the reasoning of why we teach the topics we do and why we are teaching them in the way that we do. And I think referring back to a lot of the section and challenge here is going to really support departments and individuals to feel confident in that. I definitely recommend this book to trainees, NQTs, to help you reflect on how purposeful what you're doing in your classroom is, but also to departments as a support to curriculum planning. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Next up, we'll hear from Emma McRae, the author of the maths version of the book, and some reflections from Daniel Rodriguez-Clark. Hello. I'm Emma McRae and I am the author of Making Every Maths Lesson Count. I currently work in ITE and I get to train aspiring maths teachers, which is an absolute privilege, uh, having taught maths since around 2004. The original book, Making Every Lesson Count, uh, was a huge success and I think that that's down to two reasons, or at least in my humble opinion, I think there's two reasons uh, that it's been so successful. So the first is that the framework, the six principles that Sean and Andy came up with are a really effective way of breaking down a lesson or parts of the lesson, phases of the lesson into manageable chunks so that you can focus on different parts of your teaching um, at any given time. And then for me, the second thing is that within each of the principles, the strategies in the book are really practical, which means that, of course, you can go away and action them with very little effort, which given the workload teachers have at the moment is really, really important. 
So I think it's those two aspects uh, that drew me to the book, the six principles, the framework that they use, and also this idea that, that it could be a really practical tool for teachers. So I wrote the maths version uh, because I was lucky enough to see a tweet that Sean Allison put out. They were looking for an author for the maths version. And I just thought, do you know what? I'm going to have a stab at that. I'd been teaching for a long time. I'd been training teachers as well. Um, and I just thought that I, I had some experience. Um, my role in ITE meant I had to engage with research. And I just thought that, that I might be able to put that all together into something useful for teachers. Um, so I submitted a uh, sample chapter to the publisher and was chuffed when I heard back that they wanted me to go ahead and write the book. Chuffed and terrified, obviously. <laughs> but it's, it's been a, a wonderful experience. I've learned more, I think, writing that book than doing anything else. Um, so that's why I wrote the, the maths version. And I'm going to share a few takeaways from the book. I've chosen them largely based on things that I found most interesting, uh, but also things that teachers tend to talk to me about once they've re read the book. Uh, so things that stick out for them. And maybe that's because uh, it's new to them or in most cases it's just made them think about something that they already do a little differently or added something to um, their, what they already do. So the first one is that I looked at some frameworks for being able to try and measure the level of challenge that a task or a problem might be presenting um, to a student. And once you've attempted to measure it, how you then might be able to adapt it to make it uh, not really easier or harder, but, but there were lots of variables that you could change uh, in, in order to be able to moderate or adapt. It's, it's the level of challenge that you were offering students. Um, and there were two frameworks that we looked at for that. Uh, one is the depth of knowledge framework, which is um, a guy called Robert Komplinski in America writes a lot about. Um, and that's the idea that uh, it's the level of thought that students have to apply that, that makes a problem task uh, more difficult or not. Um, rather than like the length of time it takes or um, any other kind of factors. So the depth of knowledge is one that we explore. Um, and the other one is the, the FICT framework, which has in some cases been renamed the FACT framework. But the idea that you can look at the familiarity, uh, the independence or the autonomy, the complexity and the technical demand of tasks and then sort of move all those um, ratings around to make the task different um, in those four ways. And I think uh, that's been a really interesting one, not only because teachers have found it interesting, but also because it's not math specific. So it's been really interesting to think about what does that look like in other subjects. Um, the big one that I talk about a lot uh, that I'm going to share next is what I call the power and versatility of worked examples. So in maths, I mean, the worked example is our bread and butter. Uh, we use it all the time, every lesson, I would say. Uh, most maths teachers will use a worked example. Uh, but I think when I had to 
think more deeply about worked examples when writing the book, even I had underestimated the versatility of them. So in the book, we look at lots of different types of worked examples beyond the bog standard, if you like, worked example that you might share at the beginning of a topic um, whilst you're showing students how to do something. Um, and so briefly, they are um, that you can use incomplete worked examples. And there's some stuff around how if you take the latter steps, the end steps away from a worked example first to make it incomplete, um, that's slightly more effective than taking the first steps out. Um, but it does depend on maybe there's a particular step in a problem that you know your students struggle with. So the classic example is um, if you're factorising a quadratic and solving a quadratic equation, there's the step where you have to say either one of the brackets must be equal to zero if the equation is equal to zero. And that's a tricky step for students to master. So maybe you want to get them to focus on that one step. You can give them an incomplete worked example that has got that step missing. Um, but the idea that you can play with worked examples and take out bits of them, uh, that also helps with managing cognitive load, uh, maybe early on in the learning episode. Um, you can also use incorrect worked examples. Uh, there's a great set of resources called Algebra by Example and Math by Example that do this. Um, they're all prepared, which is great. And uh, they're really effective for misconceptions. So if you think students have got misconceptions um, or you know of one that you're worried about your students, um, maybe you haven't explicitly talked to them about it, uh, then incorrect worked examples are a great way of doing that. Um, and then finally are the strategy comparison worked examples, which is where you get maybe, say you're doing long multiplication and you take one worked example that is uh, the column method and one worked example which is the grid method and you might say, okay, um, Sean solved it this way, Andy solved it this way, what is the same and what is different? So it's this idea that we can get students to maybe have a deeper understanding of some of these different methods by comparing them directly. And so that one in particular, the strategy comparison worked examples, um, is the one that, that teachers often are interested in uh, because they perhaps haven't thought about it, doing it explicitly um, in the past in that, in that way. I think obviously teachers have compared methods but maybe not thought about framing them in that way. I'm going to share one more takeaway, and I think this is one that I was guilty of not paying enough attention to um, when I was teaching, and that is the importance of the language that we use. Um, I embarrassingly subscribed to the idea that uh, language wasn't as important in maths as it was in other subjects because we had our own language, um, which I've now changed my opinion of completely. Um, because the language that we use is how students construct their understanding of what we're trying to teach. Um, and so in maths, it's, it's particularly difficult, although I'm sure other subject teachers would argue theirs are too. Um, but there's, there's kind of two types of words that we use in maths. So words that exist only in our subject. Um, so, for example, that might be integer, hypotenuse, and they're difficult words because students don't come across them very often. 
So they they have a low frequency in their sort of surroundings, in their communication, in their vocabulary, which makes them hard for students to remember what they mean. Um, and then there's words, uh, possibly worse, words that have the same spelling and pronunciation as other words. So, for, for example, mean, factor, odd. Um, and they're tricky because it's likely that students recall the first meaning that they come across, um, which is not likely to be the maths one. So it's interesting that uh, I kind of change my mind and, and find language a barrier. Uh, the language we use is a barrier in some cases. Um, so there's a, a, a bit in the book about how we can improve our language. Anyway, uh, I hope that was useful. And um, I'm at McRae Emma on Twitter if you have any questions. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. My name's Dan Rodriguez-Clark. I'm a maths teacher and the teaching and learning coordinator in an international school in Lima, Peru. And on Twitter, I'm at InteractMaths. Um, like all the Making Every Lesson Count books, I'm talking about the Making Every Maths Lesson Count book. Um, it's a combination of some theory and then practical ideas around the six key ideas that all the books are based on. That's challenge, explanation, modelling, practice, questioning and feedback. So when I read the book, I decided to choose one of the ideas from each of those uh, sections and try to implement them in my practice. Um, and with different ones, I've got to different stages. So for challenge, um, I chose the quantify and ramp up challenge. And the thing that stood out with this for me is the idea of doc levels. That's depth of knowledge. Um, and the idea that we can uh, assess any question as to how deeply it uh, challenges the student's knowledge of something. So it could be a simple question as choose a simple topic, just addition of one digit numbers, uh, one plus three equals, but you can up the doc by making it one plus what equals or up the depth of knowledge even more by going something plus something equals five, find all the answers. Um, and what I particularly liked about this idea was not necessarily coming up with the questions because there are, there are plenty of them around, but more looking at uh, worksheets or that we're giving questions, sets of questions that we're giving to the students um, and rating the questions with a doc level so that we get an idea of are they getting a broad mixture. One of the things that was mentioned is that they should be getting all doc levels. Don't skip the basic one and go straight for the hard stuff, but they need a, a range of all the different levels. The second one was uh, worked examples. Now, worked examples are a key feature of maths lessons. Um, I have been in my teaching for a long time. Um, but what I particularly liked in this one was the idea of using incorrect examples. Um, so that's a fully worked example where there's an error and it's explained to the students and then they have to correct it. Um, and one website that was suggested was Algebra by Example. Um, I've had a quick look at this. Um, it's not something I've really made the most of yet. This is something that I'm going to make more of in the in the next uh, few months um, but that's something that I, I thought was really interesting. Um, one that I've done a lot of work with is the one for explanation which was concept and non-concept 
And this is the idea of not just explaining what something is, but also explaining what it's not um, and showing boundary examples to say um, where the definition ends, as it were. Um, in particular, the suggestion to use Freya models um, to, to do this. And a Freya model, um, for those that don't know, is just a four, splitting a page into four and you have the definition, you have some characteristics, you have some examples, and then you have some non-examples of, of the concept that you're trying to explain. Um, and I've been thinking hard about how to effectively use these. And what I've settled into, which seems to be working quite well, is, is this sort of routine. So when I'm introducing a new concept, whatever that is, um, I start by introducing it with some examples. And I'll, I'll show a few examples so that students can get the idea of what it is. Um, once I've done a few examples, I'll then throw in a few non-examples um, to show them what it's not. And in particular, I will show some of the boundary conditions that are sort of, is it or is it not, a bit more difficult to tell that they need to be able to identify um, when they're working with this concept. Then I get students to come up with their own definition based on what we've seen on the examples. Then I'll hear a few of them. Um, we'll formalize that into a formal definition. Um, and then I'll test the students on a few more by giving them a few examples and non-examples and they have to identify whether it's an example or a non-example. And then I'll give them the Freya diagram and get them to fill out the Freya diagram themselves uh, based on the discussion that we've just had. Um, that's been going pretty well. Um, I think it's quite a useful uh, way to explore concepts uh, in maths because often it is the idea that um, where does the concept stop holding that trips students up. Um, in practice, it was uh, Swan's top tasks, which are basically rich tasks. Um, the, the author, Emma McRae, uh, identified some from Malcolm Swan that he'd put together and I've kind of broadened that a little bit and found some other examples of rich tasks that I like to use um, regularly and I'm trying to build those into more of my practice. One source of those has been Open Middle, um, another source has been mathsvens.com um, but I'm trying to sort of not use loads of different ones because I want the students to recognise the activity fairly quickly um, rather than having a different thing every time, but also give a little bit of variety. Um, plan the questions, that's for questioning, and that's thinking about not just what questions the students will be um, doing in an exercise, but what questions I'm going to ask them whilst they're doing their exercise to check their understanding, um, or to challenge them a little bit further, or stretch them. Um, and this is something that I've been working on again um, recently um, and I found the book Thinkers which was uh, published by the ATM um, to be particularly good for this. Some ideas like give an example of um, and then what if we were to change this. Just simple questions that uh, make the students think in a little bit more depth about what we're, what we're discussing. And then the last one which is actually the first one I implemented um, which is in feedback which is marking codes. And for those of you that don't know, this is a, uh, basically a, a list of letters, codes that you use to um, 
for when you're marking, so you don't have to write out full sentences all the time. And then you have a sheet with um, what those codes mean. Um, and particularly for some of the common issues, um, this saves a lot of time. But the important thing with this that I hadn't thought about before was this sheet also has action steps for the students. So, for example, one common issue is uh, students using poor notation. So I've decided to use the letter N for that. I write an N next to it. And then the action step is they have to rewrite it using correct mathematical notation. Um, so for each one of those uh, codes, there is an action step for students to follow. Um, so that's six things that I took away from the book. It really was an excellent read for any, any maths teacher. Um, there'll be something in there you can take away um, and use the next day or there's be some things in there that you can probably spend another year or two developing. Um, so I really would recommend it to any, any maths teacher to take a look at my, Making Every Maths Lesson Count by Emma McRae. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Our next contribution comes from Joe Payne and Mel Scott to talk about their primary version of the book. This is Joe Payne and Mel Scott, authors of Making Every Primary Lesson Count. We were approached by the authors of Making Every Lesson Count as they knew our school shared the ethos and we were already reading their book and embedding the um, practices within our school. So they approached us and asked us if we would be interested in writing a primary version and actually we really felt that there was a gap in the market for... um, some teaching and learning support that would really support teachers with their CPD and could really make a difference in class. Um, So we followed the same model as making every lesson count, sharing case studies and linking research to classroom practice. Um, And our aim was to create a book that not only um, talked about relevant research, but also gave hints and tips to make teaching much more effective and life a little bit easier for teachers. We feel that the book is written for um, anyone who has an interest really in primary education, but specifically primary teachers who are looking to improve their practice, who want ideas that are backed up by educational thinking and research we found that NQTs and newer teachers have said that they particularly like the book because it gives them a starting point for their classroom practice. And we've heard that schools around the world have bought copies for all of their members of staff and sort of crafted teaching and learning policies based around the strategies and ideas in the book. And a few ITT providers have used the book as a core text and have designed their modules around it as well. We hope that the key takeaways for teachers are going to be that they are encouraged to strip their teaching and learning back to just the bare essentials, ignoring all the fads that may have come in and out of fashion over the years and concentrate on what are the real principles of good teaching. And in a practical sense, we hope that teachers are going to really, really use their copy and that they're going to highlight it and put post-it notes all over, the, all over it with the intention that they're going to actually use and embed the strategies within the book in their classrooms. In terms of anecdotes, we just really enjoyed spending time gathering stories and little ideas from teachers, from our colleagues in our schools and in other schools um, to back up the research and the principles that we were talking about. 
But in terms of now, in my role as a deputy, I do a lot of video coaching of teachers. And so we use the book as a way to support that coaching. So if teachers are particularly looking at modelling, we will look at the modelling chapter, highlight different bits, unpick what it means, we'll practice what it looks like in the classroom. And then the teacher will have a go at embedding strategies which will then be video recorded and then we'll unpick it after they've had a go and evaluate how effective it was and how again it could be improved further so the book becomes a bit of a handbook for coaching and a bit of a guide for the teachers so that they've got something to base their coaching action steps on thank you and goodbye you're listening to from page to practice Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. In this next section, we hear from Daniel Smith about the English version of the book and Tom Patterson on making every history lesson count. Hello, my name is Mr Daniel Smith and I'm second in department in English at Rygate School, which is near Red Hill. I would love to talk to you today about making every lesson count and specifically making every English lesson count. So after reading Making Every Lesson Count, I was particularly struck by the six principles, challenge, explanation, modelling, deliberate practice, questioning and feedback. I felt that this structure really spoke to me and it really made sense to me in terms of planning a single lesson, a series of lessons or even a whole scheme of work. I like the idea of putting challenge first, then explaining something, how we're going to make this challenge, modelling how to achieve it, deliberate practice, questioning throughout, and then some form of feedback. They were principles that weren't too strict, they made sense, and they were logical. I also really enjoyed this quotation that I got from the Making Every English Lesson Count, we each have to carve out our own teaching identity. So even though there are principles, we take them in our own way, and we carve out our own teaching identity as well. So it also Making Every English Lesson Count also gave me some very specific strategies that I then implemented into my classroom teaching. So for example, when preparing my class for a new text, I might instead of using the usual introductory lesson about plot, perhaps introduce three key quotations, go through themes, talk about related non-fiction from the time, articles, talk about adjectives to describe the text itself, or even start with a kind of key question or a hinge question or an overarching question before getting into the text itself. Also, I um, like the idea of using images. So we now call it dual coding, I suppose, but putting words with images, pairing them up, keep images near the text so they can be visualized better, dual coding again, making sure that images are simple to be retained and maybe to help retrieve later. Also, perhaps allowing students to draw occasionally, perhaps drawing their own symbols for dual coding, and then appropriate uh, clips for films or inspiration. For example, I really like one I like to use for Jekyll and Hyde is when um, the ape or the monkey smashes the bones um, at the start of the movie. It really links to Jekyll and Hyde when... um, Hyde kills with ape-like fury. So I just feel like this book or series of books provides both a set of key principles that can apply across all subjects, but then also gives you specific, concrete, practical examples that you can apply to everyday lessons. I think the, the combination of the two is really, really helpful and really, really thoughtful. I think all teachers need to read Making Every Lesson Count, and if there is one for your subject, For example, like I said, mine, making every English lesson count, it will just really help 
both make you feel good about what you already do as a teacher, the principles that you think you do instinctively anyway, and then also expand on them, make them concrete, make them feel real, and then provide really practical, um, simple, uh, insightful activities that are going to raise your English teaching but, or, or the subject that you're in and um, just make it feel worthwhile in, in so many different ways. Um, I really, really recommend this book um, and this book series. I'd say it's probably the most useful book I've read on teaching um, in terms of both pedagogy, principles, insight, etc. I hope this has been useful. My name is Mr Daniel Smith. Um, English teacher at Rygate School. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. My name is Tom Patterson. I have been teaching for, it's my 13th year. Um, I'm currently Director of Humanities at Greenswald Academy, yes normal secondary school in um, Hockley in Essex and I'm also the teaching and learning leader for history. We were really lucky um, and we are lucky that we've got um, the senior team who are really focused on teaching and learning so um, they actually invited Sean Allison and Andy Tharby in to present to us um, on making every lesson count and uh, made it a focus of our school CPD particularly looking at challenge and moving on to questioning. So it was something that we were already as, um, as colleagues talking about and something that we we're very passionate about doing is having more conversations around um, teaching and learning, but also about in our subject. So what was really helpful about um, Andy and Sean coming in, for me, the biggest takeaway was actually about the, um, the healthy struggle and that they talk about where we're placing our students. I've always been a teacher who kind of prides himself on teaching to the top. Um, I've always tended to feel that my strengths are with those more able students rather than um, improving accessibility for the lower down. And differentiation, therefore, has been something I've struggled with. But what uh, what Sean and Andy's um, session told me was that actually providing access and, and teaching to the top is is the right thing to do and um it opened up a lot of conversations about challenge and the idea of the healthy struggle made me realize that actually at times i haven't been challenging and i think i am and also the opposite i have been placing students in uh, an area of stress where the outcome isn't necessarily productive so taking that on board i, I was really um excited when I read that, um, that Chris Ronickles was um, producing a book specifically for history, I, I knew that that was something that I, I really wanted to, to build on and um, make a focus of the CPD in my department. So what I decided to do after getting the book and, and reading it, basically whizzing through it, because many of the concepts and ideas are quite familiar um, from the first book, but also recognising how... Uh, brilliantly it was related to my subject and um, what I did as subject leader is um, I, I made one of our CPD sessions I, I set aside um, two of the sessions just for reading the chapter on challenge um, and then inviting colleagues to at the next um, CPD meeting department to have a chat about it 
And that's all we did. I loosely gave the idea of things you already do, things you want to try, and things you do that you reconsider. And it was massively helpful. It was, it was one of the best conversations we've had. It was nice to have that um, reinforcement that things like space practice and retrieval tests and targeted interleaving homework was something we were doing that actually was reinforced by, by the book. Um, it, it made me realise, for example, that planning in advance what I want students to specifically spend time thinking about in the lesson and creating activities for that um, was extremely valuable and something I've taken on board. I, I know uh, Christopher Nicholas gives the example of adding depth to a timeline by introducing an aspect of judgment in a very managed way rather than that being a perhaps artificial add-on that the students aren't really going to buy into. And probably one of the biggest um, impacts, which also links into um, one of the previous podcasts, um, Ollie Cav's Dual Coding, um, Chris Renekles talks about the quantity of information on a PowerPoint and um, actually preventing that cognitive overload. So again, it was nice to read something that is reinforcing other things I've, I've picked up on and uh, realising that I'm developing as a teacher and I'm able to share that as a practitioner with the rest of my department. So it was fantastic. It's something that we will repeat. Um, unsurprisingly, the geography version was also extremely good. So my geography department has been similar with that. And it really is proving to be something that on both a department and a whole school level and the Making Every Lesson Count series is, is quite transformative. And best of all, it's simple, it's practical, it isn't pie in the sky, and any um, practitioner can gain from it. And that, after all, is what the best CPD will always be. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Our final segment of today's podcast is on the MFL version of Making Every Lesson Count with contributions from the author James Maxwell and reader Hannah Purdy. Just whilst I have the chance, I want to say a massive thank you to Crown House for giving me the honour of reviewing this book prior to the publication and using so much of what I wrote, both on the cover and within the book. It was a real privilege. Hello, my name is James Maxwell. Uh, my Twitter handle is at ni underscore principal. Uh, I'm a modern languages teacher of 20 years now, um, and I'm currently principal of Carrick Fergus Grammar School in Northern Ireland. So uh, the book itself follows the uh, six uh, principles which are outlined in the original Making Every Lesson Count book. So you have uh, stretch uh, and challenge, uh, you have uh, questioning, uh, you have practice, uh, you have modelling, you have uh, feedback, uh, and you have the push for um, mastery, uh, all uh, sort of discussed and talked about uh, in uh, the book uh, itself. And there's a debate, isn't there, in um, modern languages uh, and modern languages learning at the moment um, about that balance between general cognitive psychology uh, and uh, very uh, specific research into second uh, language learning. Um, and at times, uh, I suppose, uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, uh, it can feel a little bit like never the twin shall meet. 
um, that they're both quite different, but uh, I don't think that's the case. Um, and I think the concepts uh, that are currently um, being discussed um, and reviewed in relation to general cognitive uh, science into learning, you know, that notion of um, retrieval practice, for example, or the, the importance of, of knowledge, uh, etc. I think they're still pertinent uh, for um, modern languages as well, uh, because ultimately, you know, even though our discipline is a very cumulative affair, that uh, our, our students are constantly developing their schema in long-term memory based on uh, prior knowledge uh, and building upon that particular knowledge, um, and in relation to retrieval, you know, our pupils will have to retrieve uh, in order to strengthen their memories uh, and uh, therefore follow um, that particular uh, pursuit of fluency in the language. So uh, notions such as uh, the, the importance of knowledge and uh, the importance of uh, retrieval and cognitive load theory, how we can um, harness working memory in the classroom, outsourcing long-term memory through um, really pertinent scaffolds and writing frames, etc. Uh, they're all, I think anyway, very valid and, and pertinent in the modern languages classroom. Um, however, it's also the case that um, there is uh, a lot of really important research into second language learning specifically. Uh, and it is also the case that, uh, and I make this point in my book, that modern languages can be a very different animal from uh, the subjects such as uh, history, uh, where uh, the use of, of anecdotes and, and stories uh, in uh, English uh, can have such a great impact uh, on uh, students' ability to comprehend and, and understand um, the particular discipline. Of course, in languages, um, uh, that particular notion of the, the use of anecdotes, etc., in English is, is somewhat more redundant. Um, not just because we probably, primarily, but not always, will be using the target uh, language. Uh, and secondly, because uh, the vast majority of what we want and need our children to know, particularly in light of new GCSEs where there's a stronger focus on, on grammar, uh, etc., um, it doesn't lend itself just uh, as well. So in the book itself, um, I, I talk about the importance of challenge, um, how that can be uh, difficult in the modern languages classroom because our children coming in in year seven, they're bringing different cultural backgrounds with them. Some of them will have been to the target language country, will have cultural anecdotes, mostly positive of those experiences. Some will have learnt a little bit of language in the primary school um, and others will not. Uh, so you have this range of, of ability and cultural experience coming in in year seven uh, and that can be a, a challenge. But in the uh, very first story I, I tell uh, in the book, in the first pages of chapter one of, of that teacher who's standing in front of that year seven class on their first morning of French at secondary school, uh, I hopefully 
put across the point as well that even though it's a challenge, it's also a great opportunity. Uh, but the chapter goes on to describe how, um, you know, challenge in the languages classroom um, probably uh, supersedes everything else and is overarching. Um, you know, it's it's in uh, the, the expectations we set in the classroom. It's in how we frame our learning intentions in the classroom. And I talk about how they should be probably unique. Uh, a magnifique, uh, you know, we should have one very strong, uh, ambitious, aspirational learning intention, potentially uh, covering uh, the lesson uh, in question. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Second chapter is on explanation. Um, and I, I suppose in modern languages, a, a better word may be presentation, how we present uh, aspects of language, whether it is uh, vocabulary, uh, core structures, um, uh, frequent uh, terminology, uh, academic register, um, how we introduce grammar in, in the classroom, uh, etc. And in that particular chapter, uh, I lean um, on quite a number of uh, pieces of work and research, not least by the Modern Languages uh, Pedagogy uh, Review. Um, I also discuss Gianfranco Conti's uh, work in that particular chapter. Um, we look at, uh, for, for example, the, the potential importance of um, internalizing particular structures uh, implicitly uh, in long-term memory. Um, with the aim of further down the line when they are explicitly taught. Um, our students, uh, having already built uh, certain patterns uh, in their uh, long-term memory which uh, allow for deeper learning. Um, we look at the importance of uh, songs, um, of uh, uh, the um, different uh, types of academic register, um, we look at uh, the potential for uh, explicit grammar teaching uh, in the modern languages classroom uh, as well. Problem is that our students, especially younger students at Key Stage 3, because they are novices, um, will not really have the experience or the expertise in order to determine what is rich language uh, or not. Uh, and of course, um, we will have students who will opt for the easy way out and when given a modern languages homework, it may potentially go straight on to an internet translator um, and uh, get the answers uh, thinking that they are accurate. But if your experience of internet to translators is anything like mine, on occasions they are far from accurate. So I think in chapter three, I tell the story of Ben, who has done that, uh, and come uh, up in his homework with a, a term which is completely uh, wrong. So the importance of modelling in the classroom, uh, in the modern languages classroom, cannot be underestimated. It's our opportunity uh, when we have that captive audience, so to speak, before us to benchmark brilliance um, to ensure that we are modelling um, extended writing uh, in particular, but also speaking, I'll come back to that in a moment, uh, extended writing which allows our, our students um, uh, to uh, experience the process of constructing uh, a, a paragraph in uh, the target language which um, 
not only ticks all the boxes in relation to exam board mark schemes, but uh, much more importantly, perhaps, um, develops uh, their uh, ability to write coherently and fluently in uh, the target language. Uh, and what a skill for uh, later uh, life. So in that chapter on modelling, we talk about uh, how we can construct models together with the students through uh, quick-fire questioning, uh, the, the opportunity uh, to ensure that our students are comprehending uh, various aspects uh, of uh, language learning, uh, not least uh, the use of tenses. Um, and we also look at, at deconstructing uh, models uh, together, whereby a particular model is prepared in advance uh, and students have the opportunity to tear it apart, albeit in a very positive way, um, to look at the uh, various uh, core ingredients which have made up that uh, piece of work. Um, and that particular chapter talks a lot about how we may question students in order to get the answers that we uh, really want uh, for them to learn. Uh, the chapter also looks at modelling speaking. Um, I talk a little bit in that particular chapter um, about uh, the, the, the importance, perhaps, uh, of, of repetition of drill uh, in the language. Uh, that's uh, uh, something which not everybody may uh, uh, agree with, um, but I think has a place, um, the importance of uh, rote uh, learning. Uh, and we talk uh, a little bit about um, a, a concept which I saw uh, and, and heard about firstly through the Michaela School uh, in Wembley of uh, cuddles or kudle, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, whereby uh, students annotate uh, chunked phrases and sentences um, which uh, are, are a prompt and an aid uh, for their speaking. For example, if there's liaison, um, they will draw a line between uh, the S uh, and uh, the beginning of the next word uh, in order to remind themselves when they're learning it that uh, in pronunciation there is going to be uh, liaison involved. So that's a brief uh, snapshot of making every MFL lesson count. Um, I hope uh, those who have read it have enjoyed it. Um, it's not perfect um, and there are probably many activities um, that uh, could have been mentioned uh, that aren't. There's just so much in the modern languages classroom but I have to say that's why I, I love um, Twitter uh, because every day I learn something new on Twitter um, uh, through that great um, bunch of modern languages teachers who make up MFL Twitterati and who are always sharing uh, resources. So the book really is a, a starter for 10. Um, it's not um, the be all and end all of modern languages teaching in any shape or form, um, but hopefully um, gives people a, a bit of a, a basic um, review, if you like, into uh, general cognitive science um, uh, and uh, also uh, a brief look at second language uh, learning research uh, itself. Um, and thanks again to Steve Smith and Gianfranco Conti in particular for that. Um, and looks, I suppose, at perhaps some uh, benchmarks and, and frameworks which we can use um, at a curricular level, um, but also uh, in the classroom uh, itself 
in order to ensure that we are giving our students the best possible experience. So that's me, James Maxwell, Twitter handle uh, NI underscore principal. Uh, thanks to Rebecca Nobes for the opportunity to do this, over and out. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Hi, my name's Hannah, at MissMFL16 on Twitter, and I'm a modern foreign languages teacher at a large secondary academy in Salford. I'm now in my third year of teaching and currently enjoy engaging in CPD. Our school has a CPD focus steeped in research this academic year, and this has given me the opportunity to read more in relation to MFL specifically and school-wide issues. I haven't actually read the original Making Every Lesson Count, but have heard so many fantastic reviews that I was thrilled to hear Making Every MFL Lesson Count by James Maxwell was soon to be published. I immediately pre-ordered my copy and I couldn't wait for it to arrive. The book is split into six main sections, challenge, explanation, modelling, practice, feedback and questioning, which are all fundamental parts of teaching practice. These sections made the book easy to dip in and out of, or read the whole book as I did during the Christmas holidays. I've never read a book so quickly on teaching practice. I absolutely love it. And I hope that I'll be able to share some of these ideas with you throughout this podcast. The challenge section, for me, perfectly summarises how my school has embedded the teach to the top strategy into our teaching by providing pupils with structured opportunities to use vocabulary and context as soon as possible. And also, it's important to include a healthy level of struggle. However, this needs to be supported by appropriate scaffold. This book focuses on students experiencing success after this struggle, And I think this is fundamental to avoid pupil disengagement. In this section, I also loved how James Maxwell gave an example of how languages could be increased when the same topics are studied each academic year. The language needs to become more and more complex and the pupils need to realise this. Personally, I am focusing on the use of retrieval practice in my lessons this term and found both sections in this topic in chapters 1 and chapters 4 to be really useful. I have embedded many retrieval practice ideas and I continue to research this idea further. Most of my lessons include some form of retrieval practice, whether that be through a give me five activity where I ask pupils to give me five examples of a specific thing, whether that be the tenses, adjectives, modes of transport, holiday activities, the list could go on. Or through a challenge grid. I feel that retrieval is important to prepare the students prior to their new knowledge acquisition. Throughout chapter four, James provides ideas of how to bed all of these ideas into an MFL teacher's practice in each of the key skill areas. I've trialled some of these ideas, such as bad translation, where pupils make the corrections and discuss the errors in class, which the pupils have found very beneficial. They love pretending they're the examiner. I particularly like the idea of a mock Friday, which has been a huge success since I introduced it to my year 11 lessons. The pupils actually now look forward to period five on a Friday because they always come in and say, Miss, is it mock Friday? The students from my year 11 class have given me overwhelmingly positive feedback, 
saying they've enjoyed exploring exam technique and applying their knowledge into that situation, something which they have found increasingly challenging in the past. I thoroughly recommend this book to any MFL teacher. It's full of so many ideas to focus on. Each chapter highlights different areas of practice. I really could spend hours listing all the different things I found useful in this book and it's so easy to read and refer back to as and when needed. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank James for a great book with a focus on modern foreign language teaching specifically. Wow, what a way to celebrate episode 10 of From Page to Practice. So many amazing contributions. Thank you so much to everyone who's been involved today. I hope if you've not read either the original version of the book or your subject-specific one, as long as there is one, this episode has convinced you to get a copy. Maybe there isn't a version for your subject yet. Why don't you write it? Next time we'll be discussing a book that seems to greatly split opinion. That's When the Adults Change by Paul Dix. If you have any thoughts on it at all, this book, we really need your contributions. So please do get in touch in the usual ways. The address is coming up shortly. All that's left to say is a huge thank you to all the authors and readers who've taken part in this episode. And I'll hear from you next time. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.